Let's look inside your brain. Did you know there's a part of your brain shaped like a horseshoe? It sits above your nasal cavity. It's called your olfactory bulb, and it has to do with what you smell. A freshly cut orange, steaks on the grill, warm chocolate chip cookies. If you can imagine the smell, you can thank your olfactory bulb. Now, the olfactory bulb has some interesting brain neighbors. It's close to the amygdala and hippocampus. Those control emotions and memories. Now, think about it. Got a turkey roasting in the oven? Your nose picks up the aroma, and the olfactory bulb sends a signal to your brain. Suddenly, it makes you think of Thanksgiving. This is the reason why a whiff of cotton candy can bring you back to childhood. Today on Proof from America's Test Kitchen, we'll tell you a story that shows just how powerful a smell can trigger a memory. I'm Kevin Pang. Everyone take a deep breath through your nose and stick around. Reporter Haley Gray brings us this story. Lulu and Nadia are both Palestinian women who have never lived in Palestine. My name is Nadia Tomalim. I am a Palestinian immigrant. Nadia is a food blogger and a cooking instructor. She lives in Seattle with her husband and three boys. My name is Lulu Abuda. I'm Palestinian-Brazilian, New Yorker. Lulu owns a cracker business. She uses staples of the Palestinian pantry in her cooking. She's a single mother to twins and a two-time breast cancer survivor. And for both of them, za'atar is very important. We talk about za'atar as like the Palestinian al-akhdar. It's the green gold of Palestine. It's the must staple. I don't know any friends or acquaintances or any Palestinian that has not grown up eating za'atar. They have a lot in common, but they don't know each other, or they didn't. Nadia is this very sweet 50-year-old woman from Washington, and she's kind of Instagram famous. When her kids were young, she would pitch in at their school fundraisers by auctioning off Palestinian recipes and cooking lessons. And then I would share these recipes. And those posts got really popular. I woke up one day, and there were 100 people following me, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, and half of them I didn't know. So she just makes her account public. And I focused only on, on just um, the food. Now she has more than 30,000 followers, and Lulu's just one of them. But Nadia is amazing. Nadia, um, I love following her on Instagram because she breaks it down. Lulu, this boisterous, self-described, Queens-made New Yorker. She lives more than 2,000 miles away, now in Yonkers, New York, with her parents and her six-year-old twins. She moved in with them a few years ago when things got really tough. Like bankruptcy, divorce, overcoming cancer, postpartum, all at once, you know. Sometimes you just want to give up. You just want to break down and just say, what the f*** I'm doing? And that's when she started baking. Every night I would put the twins, I put them to sleep and I would bake. And it came out in that form of a cracker. And that's how Lulu's Gourmet Crackers was born. She baked, she posted photos on Instagram, 
And she wasn't baking to sell at first, but... People like, are you selling? So when you don't have anything to your your name, you know? So I was like, yeah, you know, hell yeah, I'm selling. Uh, so I started like that. She says za'atar is her most popular flavor. The za'atar definitely rings deep. It's here in the heart. Za'atar is two things. It's an herb and it's a spice blend. The blend has three main ingredients. The first is the herb za'atar, which is a particularly pungent and peppery type of oregano. Here's Nadia explaining how it's made. We dry it and then we uh, crush it and we rub it actually with olive oil. This is the Palestinian way at least. Um, And then we add the spice sumac, roasted sesame seed, a little bit of salt, something like that. This is the basic za'atar brand that you will see. And then, you know, people could add, you know, other spices to it or other ingredients to it. So it depends on the people's taste. Za'atar blend is herby, a little peppery thanks to the za'atar herb rich and nutty from the roasted sesame, and bright and tangy thanks to the sumac. It's a must on every breakfast table. Nadia says growing up in Jordan, moms would send their kids to school with za'atar sandwiches. She says kids ate za'atar every day, but she and Lulu both told me they'd be sure to eat it on days they had a test. Here's Lulu. Every Palestinian would tell you this, that their grandmother used to tell them, Eat up some za'atar because that will make you smart, you know? So right before an exam, we all like, <laughs> you know, like the green teeth and the sesame seeds stuck in the teeth, you know? Like, what is that that you're eating? Ew, you know? And it's not at all just for kids. One very classic way to eat za'atar is a simple combo with olive oil and warm pita bread. That's Nadia's favorite way to eat it. First dipping it in the oil and in the za'atar. Zatar has gotten a little more popular recently, but good, real zatar, it can be hard to come by. And when Lulu came across Nadia making zatar in her Instagram post... When I saw the zatar, I was like, oh yes, this, this is what I need right now, you know? And I looked around and I was like, there's no zatar around me. Like, I, I don't even have one leaf, you know? Um, but that looks mad good. She saw me making uh, the first za'atar. I was making the blend uh, for my family, and I was sharing the story. Not only did Nadia have delicious-looking za'atar blend, the one she was making, she was making it with her own stash of dried za'atar leaves. That's a rare find in the U.S. And she texted me, and she said, oh my God, you know. Those look delicious. I can smell it from here. I can smell it uh, all the way from here. And so Nadia, to this total stranger who just DM'd her on Instagram, she says, Lulu, would you please send me your address? And she's like, okay. So she sent me her address and I sent her a jar of my homemade za'atar <laughs> and some quince jam. <laughs> so Nadia sends the za'atar across the country and Lulu posts this story about it, this unboxing video. How cute Nadia is. She sent me this little za'atar concoction that she made. And she loved it. She's like, oh my God, you know, she made a story. Look at this, mashallah. Look, look at this. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you so much. It was kind of a big deal for Lulu. Why did Nadia do this? And why was Lulu so happy about it? We begin in the year 1948. That's when soldiers for the burgeoning state of Israel forced out both of Lulu and Nadia's parents from their homes. 
Lulu and Nadia are both the daughters of Palestinian refugees. Here's Lulu. My grandfather, they put a gun in his head and say, you either leave now or, you know, we're going to kill the entire family. So he packed everything really quick, whatever they could get their hands in and just fled. Nadia's family has a similar story. Uh, my dad, when he left, it was at night. So he shares a story that um, only he, the only thing he took with him, it was his uh, pillow. Nadia's father was just a kid when all this happened. So he says that I left the house with a pillow because I was worried about my pillow. <clears throat> he forgot to take his shoes. Lulu and Nadia's parents were among the 750,000-some Palestinians who were forced from their homeland between 1946 and 1950. This conflict has a few names. The Arab-Israeli War of 1948 is one. Palestinians call it the Nakba, which in Arabic means the catastrophe or the disaster. Here's Lulu. They left with their keys in their hands, you know, like thinking this is just going to be a three-month thing or a two-month thing, you know, we're going to come back. It's been a long time. Those 750,000 Palestinian refugees, they wound up in refugee camps in the West Bank and Gaza, in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, or were cast all over the world. Now, my mom's side, they ended up in the ghettos in Jordan. Mukhayyam Hussein which was one of the, the biggest, you know, ghettos set up. Those tents, you know, were set up for them once they, they crossed the border. And life in a refugee camp was pretty bleak. Lulu and Nadia both told me their parents couldn't see a future for themselves there, a way out of the camps. But for Lulu's family... Brazil was one of the countries that uh, gave citizenship. Now, you get to understand from a Palestinian standpoint... You were forced to leave a country that was taken, and you left with almost no existence. They erased you. And then you're going to a country that gave you a passport, you know, a citizenship. It's everything. For Lulu's family, transitioning into life in Brazil was made a little easier by the existing community of Palestinians there. They moved from one refugee community to another. Once they got to Brazil, they were like a family of five kids and the, the, the parents. They met some Arabs that were already there, Palestinians of the diaspora that were already there. And for a whole entire month, they were invited in each of those people's house. Like they took care of them for a whole entire month. And I grew up with that. I grew up in that community. Lulu's dad and his brothers had a cart they'd sell little things from door to door. Not clothes, but any kind of like a 99 cent store. And little by little, they gathered some money. And then my father and his brothers bought a, a storefront. And ever the entrepreneur, Lulu's dad eventually opened up his own store, a sporting goods store. So from then on, thank God, you know, like he found success. And they had a happy life in their Palestinian community in Brazil. We didn't care what part of Palestine you came from or you, the simple fact that you spoke Arabic. That's it. We are related, you know. And not until like later, later, much later, like into our 20s, 30s, I'm like, wait a minute, you're not my cousin. <laughs> you know, we, your father used to yell at me. What do you call me? You're not my cousin, you know. No, we're from and being rooted town. in Palestinian culture, that was very important to Lulu's parents. She remembers how her mom and dad took great care to bring her up in the same customs they were raised with. The Palestinians that went to South America, I think, 
they got stuck in time. She would fight with them as a teenager about how she could dress. You know, my cousin is wearing, uh, like, a, a very short dress, you know? But one thing they did not fight about was food. Lulu says her parents went out of their way to give their kids tastes of Palestine. This is before internet, before globalization, and you would have to go to Sao Paulo, 48 hours traveling by car, to get to Mercadão, which is uh, Sao Paulo's main uh, market, to get your hand in some, you know, Arabic uh, food, like, you know, to feel like that, that smell of home. We relied on people coming from overseas with luggages full of uh, spices. And azata, the zatar was a must. When a relative visited, Lulu would squirrel away some zatar so she could munch on it herself. She had come to understand that zatar was precious. I don't remember my mom sitting down and talking to us about the importance of zatar, but I remember her smelling. She's like, oh, you know, like, you know, all to you, Palestine, you know, like the, the, the pain. And one word where one sentence would lead to like, you know, a, a traveling to memory lane. When Lulu was 15, her parents sent her to Jordan for the first time. I stayed a year with my grandparents just to learn Arabic and the culture. And she had something of a revelation there about zatar and its smell. I will never forget the first smell of Jordan that I sniffed. Oh my God, I'm definitely not in Brazil. I asked her to describe the smell. Uh, definitely zatar, for sure, you know. Uh, seven spices, maraminha, which tr- translates to sage, but it's a little different. You know, it's a very strong smell of maraminha. Combine all that, you know, sumac, like, you know, the seven spices, all that together in the luggage. Everything was familiar, but nothing smelled quite like she remembered it from the suitcases. Not even the zatar. But how could that be? I concluded it was all those smells together in that, you know, the suitcase that made me think that that was what an Arab land should smell like. And then when you actually go there, you like uh, distinguish one from another, you know, and then you be, your nose becomes more savvy. There is no such a thing as that scent. When we return, the Zatar connection between Lulu and Nadia deepens. The Veroni family has manufactured cured meats with ancient recipes and artisanal techniques in Italy since 1925. What began as a small grocery store run by five brothers would eventually become a global purveyor of charcuterie. So what's their secret to success? Family and respect, says Veroni USA president Marco Veroni. My father is our guide and his way of teaching us of respecting not only the people inside the company, but the customer to be like a very, very big family. That's important because it means respect for everybody. And in the long run, it pays off. Now, the fourth generation Veronis are leading the helm of the business, priding themselves on bringing charcuterie and cured meats from their family table to yours. Hey, Proof listeners. If there's one thing I want you to know about me, it's that I like using tools that feel good in my hands. 
That's where OXO comes in. When founder Sam Farber debuted OXO's iconic vegetable peeler, he asked retailers to display the peeler next to a bowl of carrots so people could sample the product at the store. Believe it or not, nothing like it had really been done before. What better way to get a feel for a product than to try it out right then and there? Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. As a podcast host, full-time grad student, and dad, I gotta say, I enjoy a glass of wine or three to unwind. And if you're like me and appreciate a nice libation at home, Naked Wines has you covered. They make it easy to get world-class wines delivered to your home. You'll be supporting winemakers who produce wines exclusive to Naked Wine subscribers. And if you're not completely satisfied, there's a hassle-free money-back guarantee. And believe it or not, home delivery is included. Get started today and save $100 off your first order of $140. A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit NakedWines.com summerproof and you'll have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines. From the winemaker to your door. And now, back to Lulu and Nadia. Of all the things Lulu could have written to Nadia that day on that Instagram post, the photo with the Zatar leaves in it, the most meaningful thing Lulu could have said, to her at least, is exactly what she did say. This photo. I can smell it from here. I can smell it all the way from here. I remember her smelling. She's like, It's like I can smell it. Now, for Nadia, what Lulu wrote meant something too. Nadia grew up in Amman, the capital of Jordan. Her family lived in the same building as her grandparents, and they had this oven. It was on wheels, connected to a propane tank. And in the summer, her grandmother would bake in the courtyard of their building. And in the winter, they'd move it inside to warm up the house. I can describe it as, let's say, a rectangular box that opens and um, has two doors that opens towards you. I would be just hanging out, you know, sitting down and just watching all the steps that goes in preparing these, um, this food. All the magic came from these just two doors. <laughs> You put something in and something smells really great that comes out of the oven. When za'atar season came, we're talking about the herb itself. So they would make this za'atar bread. We call it in Arabic, across za'atar. So it's like a bread that is stuffed with this uh, za'atar herb that is mixed with onions and uh, seasoned with uh, sumac and salt and pepper and then lots of extra virgin olive oil. And then as soon as it comes out, um, my grandma or my aunt will start, you know, taking pieces of this za'atar. She would hand it. And that was just the most delicious thing that you can, <laughs> you can have. Za'atar season usually starts about May, a little after the winter rains stop. The dryness of the soil and the heat, it stresses the za'atar plant and makes it produce more of this compound, carvacrol. It has that peppery, um, earthy taste in it uh, when you try it. It's different than the ones that you try here in the United States because, of course, you know, the uh, landscape is different. As for the rest of the year, Nadia's family, like all her neighbors in Jordan, 
They grew some za'atar herb in little pots or gardens around their homes. You pick from them and then you just use inside. We have like a za'atar salad that we make or you would use inside uh, some dishes like, you know, with chicken or, uh, or like for decoration or actually just to boil to make tea. That tea Nadia was talking about, it's used for respiratory health and to fight off colds. The carvacrol has antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties. This is actually one of the remedies that our grandparents and parents, you know, like if you're starting a cold, they will immediately uh, boil some za'atar for you to drink. And whether it was za'atar in tea form or baked into pastries or tossed in a salad, these foods were like a conduit for memories of Palestine, especially for Nadia's dad. His name was Khaled Tomale, but he went by Abu Ali, which means father of Ali. In Arab communities, it's common to refer to oneself this way after a first child is born. My dad used to share his stories about how they used to forge, you know, for things and how his mom cooked uh, these, you know, greens. He was born in Annaba, uh, in Palestine, and um, all his memories was uh, about, you know, all these little meals that we weren't used to it. So I looked forward to the season to go and actually forge for it <laughs> after growing up because I really wanted to have the same experience. You know, they lived a very simple life. He would say, if you cook a meat, it's inappropriate actually to cook this meat and have the neighbors smell it without sharing it with them because not everybody can afford it. He always reminded us growing up that, you know, you just need to be aware of when you cook something, you know, you make sure that if the person next to you cannot have it. You have to share part of this food with them. Your dad would be so proud that Lulu could imagine she could smell the za'atar and, you know, you're like, well, I have to share it. That's the rule. <laughs> that's the rule, absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's the story with Lulu. That smell of za'atar for Lulu was so important. And in the same way, the smell means something deep to Nadia. It was like a call to action from her dad, like, this is the Palestinian way you always share your food. It's also hard for me to remember that he's not with us. I so appreciate all the things that he shared with me and all the things that he um, uh, taught us when we were young. Abu Ali passed away in 2014, and it's become even more important to Nadia to carry on what she feels is his legacy. You know, and I definitely uh, take this and I um, I share it with my kids all the time and I share it with the people um, through either cooking classes that I do or recipes that I share, you know, with people out there. I am so sorry, Haley. I did not mean. <laughs> I did not mean, you know, to, oh, my goodness. And Nadia's kids are carrying on this legacy, too. Here's her oldest son, Omar. Hi, my name is Omar Al-Dahli. Uh, I am 23 years old. Uh, I am Nadia's oldest son uh, and firstborn child. I think the biggest thing that my grandfather instilled in all of his grandchildren is that you have to keep fighting. And I think that everything that my mom does with her Instagram account is, is, is representative of that. Would you give a little bit of description of your grandfather or like how... Uh, what do you remember about him? Tall, generous, um, uh. funny, family man. It's, that's that's who he was as a person. I, I, I would like to add to say that um, he was a very proud, proud Palestinian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Even though he traveled a lot and uh, lived abroad, um, 
in the diaspora, but he always tells me a story that when he dreams, he dreams about his... Uh, He dreams about his village and his house and his village, Annaba. This is one of his, you know, always he says that this is a dream that always comes back to me. I'm sorry. When Omar was in middle school, their family went to visit Nadia's mom and dad in Jordan. They had these home movies of it. Uh, Sido, can you tell us what happened? Can you tell us about what happened in Annaba in the year 1948 and... Uh, um, what was your uh, experience? Abu Ali tells Omar he remembers it like it was yesterday. They knew soldiers were coming, Zionist groups like the Stern, an extremist organization, and Haganah, which later became the IDF, Israel's army today. Nadia's dad said these groups wanted the land, but not its inhabitants. That the Stern and Haganah would force people out or kill them. So the adults in his village sent the kids to sleep in an open area nearby, away from the homes they knew would be attacked. Abu Ali was eight years old. And when they heard the gunshots, they just ran. No time to grab anything, not a change of clothes, not even shoes. Abu Ali's whole family was forced out this way in 1948. Nadia's dad went back once in the 70s to try to find his childhood home in a village called Anaba. But things are very different now. After 1993, when Israel installed the first checkpoints to keep Palestinians out of what is now Israeli territory, it got harder for people like Nadia's father to get around. He was hoping uh, that he one day he would come back, but he didn't want to go back without feeling that he's free, you know, to go from an area to an area without being stopped at a checkpoint or without being humiliated at a checkpoint or, you know, just it was just hard for him to see that. Today, there's almost 200 checkpoints and partial checkpoints throughout the West Bank. And most Palestinians need special permission from Israel to enter Israeli territory, where Anaba is. And that can be hard or impossible to get. But if you have a U.S. passport, like Nadia and Omar do, it gets a lot easier. He says if Omar could go there now, he would see that it had all been destroyed. It was like they erased them from the land. And then he says something Nadia remembers Abu Ali saying often. He tells Almar, hey, you should go there. You should go find an Abba. I think my dad really latched onto that. He was filming that interview and he was like, okay, we can do this. <laughs> and um... <laughs> He looked up, you know, he pulled out maps and then we started talking more and more about details. They were going to Palestine anyway. Omar, who was 12 at the time, he was finally old enough to go through the border crossing, which can take many hours. And we decided that, okay, we're going to be in Jerusalem. And then from there, uh, this is the day when we are driving uh, north. So we woke up at our hotel um, in Jerusalem and we had breakfast. We went downstairs. Funny enough, we had Zatar for breakfast and we were talking about what we were going to do that day. I also was jumping around that, oh, are we going to do this? I remember even putting yeah. a post in. 
on my Facebook saying that today we're exploring, we're going to find another. There was the fear of failure, of, of not finding it, and then <laughs> failing not only ourselves, but our grandfather. Was we wanted to give him, like, the hope, you know, yeah. because he couldn't go. So we wanted to give him the hope that we found it. And at the same time, also, we thought it's going to be very, very hard. My dad had been spending weeks just kind of pouring through maps to try and find this place. And we, you cannot drive in because, you know, it's, it's kind of blocked. So we had to walk for some time. And I see these ruins, you know, um, it seems like they, there were homes here. And you can still see the remains of these uh, homes. So I went one of the hills, you know, there, I just stood. I remember my mom crying. Uh, and I remember she tried to hide it from me. Uh, because I think it was a sad moment, but it was also like a, a joyful moment simultaneously. Um, it was uncovering a, a piece of personal history that we never thought we would find again. When he told me about these stories, when he told me about, you know, that when he dreamt his dream was always in that home, I kind of related, you know, when I went there, I was like, okay, I want to live what he lived. And there in Anaba, looking out over the land, Omar had a revelation of his own. I was thinking like, wow, this could have been my life, but it was taken from me. It feels very powerless in terms of like, there's so many innate structures that uh, was designed to keep me from being there. And it just hurts. It's, it's, uh, it's a sense of loss. It's a sense of uh, anger. I think, and most of all, it's just sorrow. kind of reminded me of Lulu, but for her, it wasn't about looking at her ancestral homeland. For Lulu, it was always about smelling Palestine via Zatar. Funny because the other day, my, my best friend's husband went to Palestine and he brought me a huge bag of uh, sage and some Zatar. And she had it with her. I was like, we all looked at each other like, damn, we missed the blad. Blad here means homeland. That's the smell in the luggage. That's it, you know? Yes, this smells like blood, like home. And Nadia gets it. She knows that feeling. When you live away from your homeland, it's just, you know, you always look for something that brings you back, pulls you, you know, to that homeland. I wondered what Zatar means to Omar, this Palestinian kid who grew up in Seattle. I don't eat it like in handfuls, <laughs> as, mm -hmm. as maybe my mom does, but then it's, it's something that's, it's a very distinct taste that, that also just tastes like home. They grew up, uh, this was something normal to have in the table. So I mm -hmm. think more appreciation for it when they, yeah. <laughs> now, adding it, of course, to avocados and yeah, to, yeah. <laughs> to, you know, eggs. When I, when I think of Zatar and I think about all of my families, all my family members always talk about their memories of having Zatar with their family members. It's, it's a connection between all of us and, and all the experiences that we've had. And it's something that we can constantly relate between each other. It's, 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 it's this grounding root that always links between us. And I, it sounds abstract and kind of like weird, but I don't know why it's, it feels really true. Lulu kind of describes the same experience. Zatar being like a root, connecting the generations of her family. The other day I was baking and my father comes to me, he's like, yeah, Zatar. That's like, oh my goodness, Zatar. But the way he said it, 
took me to, I looked at him. I had to stop and look at him because I saw him as a five-year-old boy telling me that. He remember, I was like, Helwe Yaba, like, is it nice the smell? He goes, wow, that's why I'm telling you. It reminded me when I would wake up to the smell of Zatan. You know, like my mom is baking or something. And that, I think, out of all the flavors I bake with, the Zata definitely rings deep. It's here in the heart. It takes me to that suitcase smell. It takes my father to when he was a little boy smelling Manaish or Zata, you know, like being grinded. And now I'm making that to my kids. So I could only imagine them growing up and what kind of stories they're gonna say about Zata. Like I remember my mom baking. <laughs> Waking up to the smell of Zata. Thanks to Haley Gray for bringing us this story. Oh, and by the way, I was able to order some crackers from Lulu. They're really great. If you're interested, message her on Instagram. She's at Lulu's Gourmet Crackers. That's L-U-L-U-S Gourmet Crackers. And you can check out Nadia's recipes for classic Palestinian dishes on her Instagram. She's at Nadia Tomale, that's N-A-D-I-A-T-O-M-M-A-L-I-E-H. And finally, we'd like to hear from you about how Proof is doing. Take our show survey in the episode description and get a 30% off coupon code for America's Test Kitchen's online shop. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, Kevin Pang, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by... Matt Boynton. And... Anya Gzeshik. Of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sound's composer theme music. Additional music by Cal Forster and Jordan Pearson. Finn Margolis. Is our director of post-production, and our line producer is... Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by... Angela Yang. Special thanks to Nadia Tamale, Lulu Abura, and Omar Adale for sharing their stories. And to Mira Omar, Zaina Tamale, and Ayman Adale for their help with the story, and to Ahmed Albaz for translations. Jack Bishop. Is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen, and... David Nussbaum. Is America's Test Kitchen's CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season, OXO, Naked Wines, Veroni, and Porter Road. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. 